Good evening, everyone. If you have your Bibles, please turn me to John chapter 5. We're carrying in our series in Signs and Wonders, and we're looking at the third sign this evening, which I trust will still be appropriate for where we're at in the life of the church. Uh, This sign follows almost immediately from this last sign. Uh, The second and the third sign are very close. In fact, the very next verse starts, it starts, and so there's a close proximity which we need to be aware of. But let's read together uh, John chapter 5, verse 1 to 18. This is the word of the Lord. Let's hear it. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man who said to me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews there was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Only so far in the reading of God's word may reform our lives to its truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we raise our hearts to you this evening in worship, we pray that with the psalmist you would hear our cries, that our cries would come before you, and that you would give us understanding according to your word. We ask that our pleas would come before you and that you would deliver us according to your word and that your word would have way, the way, uh, its way with us tonight. They would comfort, lead, challenge, and dear Lord, they would fix our eyes upon the greater word, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. question I want to ask this evening for us, based on this particular passage, is this, what will we do with our brokenness? 
what will we do with our brokenness? As we live in a fallen world, a world shattered by sin and death, a world spoiled by disease and sickness, a world submerged by pain and disappointment, what will we do with our brokenness? The brokenness of sin, the brokenness of sickness, the brokenness even of separation with those we love. Is it true of us and can it be said of us that we with Paul long to be freed from the body of death? Do we groan with creation for a restoration of the corruption of this world corrupted by sin? Or are we like those out there, like so many in the world, that are content and satisfied in the way things are? Content and self-pitying in the destruction of this world as they go along with this world. What will we do with our brokenness? I do think our passage calls that question and poses that question before us, especially when we see the close proximity between the second and the third sign. In the second sign, we saw Jesus heal an official son, and now in the third sign, we see him heal this, this paralytic, this layman. And note the one miracle almost immediately follows on from the, from the previous, as if we're meant to contrast them with one another. Previously, we saw a man with great urgency come to Jesus for healing, but now we see Jesus come to a man to heal him, yet this man is sluggish. Previously, we saw a man uh, not witnessing a miracle firsthand, yet he grows in faith. Yet here we see a man who has a miracle performed on him, and we see no evidence of faith. So see, these two signs, these two miracles really challenge us. Which of these two men are we like? What will we do with our brokenness, our pain, our needs? Will we by faith seek help and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or will we live in our unbelief, pitying our lot in life, selfishly living in this world in our own strength? What will we do with our brokenness? To help us understand and answer that question and, and uh, steer us toward the right answer to that question, let's look at our passage. And the first thing I want you to see in it is the setting of this particular miracle. You see in verse 1 to 3, we see that Jesus is now in Jerusalem and he goes to this unknown festival. And we're told he enters by the sheep gate and he goes to a pool called Bethesda. And Bethesda means house of outpouring and has traditionally been understood as the house of mercy or grace. And as Jesus comes to Bethesda, we can see why it's called that. Because as he comes there, it's, it, he sees a multitude of invalids. This is a place overcrowded with the lame and the blind and the paralyzed, the sick, the needy. It's filled with broken people who are in need of grace in need of mercy. And as we come to this particular setting, as we come to see this place where many are gathered in their brokenness, in their pain, in their need, we need to understand what we see here theologically. You realize that according to the Bible, all sickness, all brokenness, all dis disability, all of it is a result of the fall. It's a result of living in an imperfect world broken by sin. 
Uh, J.C. Ryle makes this important observation. He says, when we read of cases of sickness like this, we should remember how deeply we ought to hate sin. Sin was the original root, the cause and the fountain of every disease in the world. God did not create man to be full of aches and pains and infirmities and misery. These things are the fruits of the fall. There would have been no sickness if there had been no sin. See, the setting of this miracle reminds us that we live in an imperfect world that's been broken by sin. And don't get me wrong, I'm not just referring to, to, to those who are physically broken. No, I'm referring to those who, who, who are spiritually broken. I'm referring to more than just the, the lame and the blind and the paralyzed. But those who spiritually are lame and blind and paralyzed. Did you notice that verse 4 is missing probably in your Bible? If you have the King James or the New King James, it's there. But it's not in most modern translations. And the reason for that is it's not in the original, to be frank. It was in, put in much later to help explain the passage. And, and in all fairness, it does, it does help us to understand the text. So verse 4 in the New King James says this, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after, stirring, after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now that verse might not be original, but it's helpful. It shows us the, the superstition of these people. It's superstitious for at least four reasons. Number one, that's not how angels work in the Bible. They're not handmaidens to unbelievers. Number two, if people are healed by this angel who stirs the water, why are there so many sick? Why is there a man for half a lifetime who hasn't been healed? And thirdly, this sounds more like what you find in the apocryphal writings, fanciful, mystical writings. And fourthly, there's archaeological evidence that suggests that this pool was perhaps even an unorthodox Jewish healing shrine that was influenced by pagan culture. And therefore, many commentators point out that verse 4, together with verse 7, reveals to us the, the superstition of these people. A, a fallen people who, who in their brokenness and in their need turn to myths for help. Superstition for hope. See, this entire setting points us to the imperfect world in which we live. A world filled with physical broken people, but more seriously filled with those who are spiritually broken. And we see this, don't we? We see this all around us in our world. Wherever you look, there's brokenness, there's disability, there's disease, there's death. And in our brokenness, how often do we not see people turn to superstition for help? Whether it's the charlatan faith healer, whether it's the witch doctor, the sangoma, whether it's the esoteric horoscope mystic, we see people turn to these false saviors to give them hope and to give them help in their trials. And it's important for us to see this. It's important to, to see our brokenness, to, to see that we live in an imperfect world. A world that's been corrupted, Genesis 6.11, that's been cursed, Genesis 5.29. A, a world that's now characterized by futility, Ecclesiastes 1.2. 
A world that's become crooked and perverse, Philippians 2.15, and a world controlled now even and influenced by evil, 1 John 5.19. See, this is the world we live in. This is the setting of our passage, a broken, imperfect world. Yes, it's, it, it's into this setting and into this world that Jesus comes to offer hope and healing and restoration. That leads me to the second thing I want you to see, the sign in verse 5 to 9. In verse 5 to 9, we see in the midst of a multitude of invalids, Jesus intentionally goes to this man and he goes to heal him. And the way the text describes Jesus approaching this man is, is quite beautiful. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, 39 years, he said to him, do you, want, do you want to be healed? What a wonderful description of Christ. What a wonderful invitation and offer. And realize, beloved, Jesus is still the same today. He sees. Where others neglect and overlook and discard, He sees our brokenness. He, he sees our need. He notices our troubles. Remember Matthew 9.35 where Jesus saw, sees the crowds and he's broke, heartbroken. He, he weeps for Jerusalem. He, he sees that they're like sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion on the rest and helpless. He, he sees. Not just that he's a savior who knows. Where others are unaware of our needs, he knows. He sees our hearts. He understands our burdens. Hebrews 2.15 and Hebrews 4.15 point out to us that he's experienced all of our reality. Yet without sin, he, he knows our experience. He, he knows us and can sympathize with us. He, he knows. But not just that, he speaks. As he speaks to this man, he, when others are silent, when others uh, speak harmfully or, or foolishly, Jesus offers words of comfort and healing and hope to this man. Think of how Jesus comforts his disciples as he's about to leave and they're fearful for the future. He encourages them and says, take heart, I've overcome the world. See, Jesus is a Savior who, who sees, he knows, he, he speaks comfort. And he's given us his words to comfort us. See, see, the picture we have in, in the Scriptures and the picture we see here of Jesus is that He's one who is full of grace. And, and that shouldn't surprise us. John 1.16 tells us that in His fullness we have received grace upon grace. And it is grace that brings Jesus to the brokenness at Bethesda. It is grace that moves Him to show compassion to this man. And it is grace that heals this man, despite his sluggishness. I mean, look at his response. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And listen how he responds in verse 7. So I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stood, and while I'm going, another steps before me. Notice how he shifts the blame to others. Notice how he pities himself in his loneliness. Notice how he completely ignores Jesus' offer. Either this man is completely ignorant of Jesus or he thinks that Jesus' question is completely foolish. 
Regardless, there's nothing in this man to merit Jesus' favor. There's no evidence of faith, nothing good within this man. And there isn't even an interest to be healed. Isn't that often us? God is gracious. He gives us his invitations. He offers us his promises. And we are like this man, almost cold, sluggish. Yet despite this, Jesus heals this man. Verse 8 and 9, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. Beloved, what is that if it's not grace? I love this quote by J.C. Ryle. He says he's far more willing to save man, save than man is to be saved, far more willing to do good than man is to receive it. May I suggest you the thing that we see here in the sign, one of the things that's revealed to us is the unexpected and undeniable grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Warren Wearsby says of this passage, no matter how you look at this miracle, it is an illustration of the grace of God. And dear friends, we need this grace. You need this grace. I need this grace. In our brokenness, in our imperfect and fallen world, it is only the grace of God that offers us hope. It is only the grace that is available in God that can give help to the helpless. Why? Because like this man, there is nothing in us of merit. Like this man, there is nothing in us that can cause us to heal ourselves or comfort ourselves. No, we need grace. The grace that flows from the living God, the grace that is available in Jesus Christ. The, the grace that Carl Truman notes is grace personified, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Why grace personified? Because the immeasurable riches of God's grace overflow and abound in the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes into our world graciously, into our imperfections, into our brokenness, and He comes as the only Savior for our souls. He comes to the invalid, to the sick, the broken, the blind, the oppressed, the downcast. He offers all in need help and hope. Not necessarily physical healing, no, many in this passage weren't healed. Only one was healed, and many today aren't healed because of his purposes and plans. But he is a Savior who has been given, and in grace he offers hope. Of more importance in this life is recognizing that Jesus isn't just here to, to heal us physically. Of more importance is to note that he's the great physician of our souls. What good would it be if, if our bodies were healed, but our souls remained terminally ill because of our sin? No, we need a, a physician for our souls, one that can save us from our sin and save us from the death that is upon us for our sin. And, and that physician has been provided in Christ and Christ crucified. With his blood, we are cleansed of our iniquity. With his wounds, we have been healed. With his death, we are made partakers of eternal life. And with his righteousness, we are made healthy and holy before the living God. And all of this is ours, not because of anything in us. It's a sign of his grace. It overflows because, to us because of his grace. 
And dear friend, as you live in an imperfect world, as you wrestle with sin and sickness and death, as you try to survive pain and grief and heartache, appeal to the physician of your soul. Appeal to grace personified. Appeal to Christ. As one old author said, grace gives you nothing of your own. It clothes you, however. It crowns you and fills you with Jesus. And it's that same Jesus that says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. What a beautiful promise he speaks there. In your pain, in your heartache, in your loss, in your trial, His grace is sufficient. And so the first thing the sign really reveals to us is that Jesus is gracious and He's the gracious Savior of this world. And as we see Jesus' grace as our Savior, we also need to be wary, however, of approaching this grace that's available in Him in a manner that displeases Him and dishonors Him. And so note in the third place the sin of this particular passage. Not only do we see... uh, Not only do we see this man being sluggish in the way that he answers Jesus, but we see in verse 10 to 15 how indifferent he is to the grace of God. Now we're told that after he's healed, the the Jews, the Jewish leaders come to him and they accuse him of breaking the law because he's taken up his bed and he's walked, which breaks one of their man-made laws. And and this man's response to this accusation is is mind-boggling. It's It's shocking. Instead of rejoicing that he's been healed by Christ, he blames Jesus for healing him. Verse 11. Instead of thanking Jesus for all he's done, he has no idea who Jesus even is or what his name is. Verse 13. And instead of following Jesus loyally, believing upon him, being a follower, he ends up betraying Jesus to those same leaders. Verse 15. What we see then is a man who responds to the grace of God with ingratitude and indifference. And it's here that he shows himself to be a rank unbeliever. Why? Because that's the defining mark of an unbeliever, according to Paul. Romans 1.21, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Isn't that what you see here? He, isn't, he doesn't honor Christ. He, he fails to honor him. He fails to give thanks. It's quite fitting then that he he casts his lot with the Jewish leaders. Because throughout the Gospels, they are the clearest example of hardened unbelief. And we see that even here. Instead of seeing the work of God in healing this man, instead of rejoicing at this, they are consumed by themselves. They are consumed by their laws, their position, their authority. At the display of God's grace, they focus on themselves. Oh, dear friends, what a warning that is to us. May we never be a people who respond with selfish indifference to the work of God. May we never respond with unbelieving ingratitude at the grace of God that is bestowed upon us. Oh, dear friends, understand this. Unbelief spits in the face of God's grace. 
There is no sin as horrid, as hateful, and as hurtful as the sin of unbelief. And I asked you, and I asked you earlier, what would you do with your brokenness? But perhaps I need to ask it this way. What will you do with God's grace? Will you in faith take your brokenness to the hands of grace? Will you in faith turn to and rely upon the God who offers himself as your help in this world? Or will you in sluggish stubbornness remain indifferent to the God of grace? Will you in hardened unbelief fail to give thanks to the God who is gracious? Beloved, may I echo to you Paul's exhortation in 2 Corinthians 6.1. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. See, God has displayed His grace for us. He, he shows us His kindness in caring for us, in offering this help to us. But to not take Him up on this grace, to not learn and see His work and not respond with faith, is to abuse it. And note the subtle warning in verse 14. Uh, when they're in the temple and Jesus sees this man, he says to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, although it isn't always the case, the implication here is that this man's sickness was a direct result of a particular sin. But more importantly to see is Jesus' exhortation to sin no more. And that teaches us, beloved, that grace isn't given to us to make us free from God. Grace isn't given as an excuse or an allowance for sin. Grace doesn't abound so that sin can abound. No, grace is meant to draw us to God, to, to draw us to Him with thanks and obedience and holiness and joy and, and faith. But if we don't, the implication here is that there is something far worse than sickness. It is the, it is the, the eternal sickness, the, the second death. Uh, listen, at the warning, listen to the warning in verse 24. Jesus says, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. See, indifference and ingratitude to the grace of God invites God's judgment. It settles us with that death. And so therefore, beloved, let us take note of the sin of unbelief. Let us avoid it at all costs. Let us put to death this indifference and ingratitude. And we must avoid these things not only because they're an affront to Jesus' grace as our Savior, but they're an affront to the glory of Jesus as the Son of God. And that's the fourth and final point I want you to see from this particular passage of the Son. In verse 16 to 18, we see how this sign, how this miracle leads to the larger discussion of who Jesus is in the rest of the chapter. In verse 16, we're told the Jews persecute Jesus, and for what? Well, for healing this man on the Sabbath. They oppose him because he dares to heal. And Jesus himself takes this as an opportunity to teach them and us about who he is as the Son of God. Jesus says in verse 17, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Now, may I suggest to you that's a shocking statement for two reasons. 
Firstly, the Jews of Jesus' day believed that only God can work on the Sabbath. Even though, God, even though Genesis says God rested from his work, we know that God doesn't rest. He sustains all things by his providence. And so when Jesus says, my God is working and I am working, he is claiming equality with God. He, he does the same works as God. He is claiming an equality with God, not as an independent God, though, however, but as the Son of God. That's the second shocking thing. Jesus here is claiming a, a unique relationship with the Father, a, a relationship as the eternally begotten Son of God. Now, although the Jews understood God to be their Father, it was very rare for them to speak of God as my Father, to have this intimate relationship. But Jesus does. He, he, he calls God my Father. Even later, he, in other passages, He calls Him Abba Father. Why is that? Well, whereas Israel were, were sons of God by grace, Jesus is the Son of God by nature. That's who He is, not who He becomes. That, that's the clue we are given in John chapter 1, which gives us the lenses for which we need to understand this passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Two eternal beings there. Both are eternal. Both are intimately related. And both are God. And yet, who is this word? Well, verse, seven, verse 14 tells us it's the only son from the Father. And it is this only son from the Father who indwells, who becomes man, who becomes flesh and dwells among us. And it's this son from the Father who is the only God at the Father's side, verse 18. See, the prologue points us to the divine sonship of Christ, and it's this divine sonship in John chapter 5 that Jesus expounds upon. In John chapter 5, we find two, sets, two, two statements, two sets of statements that, that seem to contradict one another, but I think we need to take note of. On the one hand, we see Jesus dependent upon the Father. For example, he can do nothing of his own, verse 19 and 13, and he is given authority to judge and raise the dead, verse 22 and 27. Yet on the other hand, he is clearly equal with the Father because he does the same works, verse 19 and 21, and receives the same honor and glory, verse 23. And so how do we reconcile this? How can Jesus both be dependent upon the Father and divinely equal with the Father? Well, the answer is given us throughout the Gospel of John. It is the fact that Jesus is by nature the Son of God. He is dependent upon the Father because he, has the same, he receives the same divine nature as the Father and he's divinely equal to the Father because he shares that divine nature. See, the image of Son and Father inherently communicates this. Just as a son bears the nature and image of the Father who begets him, so too Jesus bears the nature and image of the Father who begets him eternally. Now, I know this is heavy theology, but wait with me, I'm getting to a point. This is clearly communicated for us in verse 26 of chapter 5, one of the strongest proofs of this particular uh, doctrine. John 5, 26 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Now realize, everything in creation has life outside of itself. You sitting there is a perfect example. You receive life from your parents. You receive life from their parents. You receive life from your grandparents. And so on and so on. All the way back to when God breathed life into us. 
And even now, the life you enjoy, every breath, every beat of your heart is dependent on something out of, outside of you. You need air to breathe. You need food to eat. You need water to drink. You need, above all, God to sustain you. See, you have life outside of yourself, but the one true living God is the one who is independent. He's self-existent. He has life in himself, and beloved, that's what makes God God. And it's that very thing that makes God God that Jesus has in himself. He has life in himself, which is given to him and shared with him by the Father. And that's why Jesus is dependent upon the Father. That's why he's a divine equal to the Father. And that's why he deserves your honor and your glory and your worship. Because he isn't just a gracious Savior. He's a glorious Son of God. He's the glorious Son who, who exits His glory, leaves the glories of heaven, comes into the squalor of our world, into our brokenness, into our imperfection, and He extends His hand to offer you hope and healing to restore you. But if that wasn't enough, John 17, 24, Romans 8, 30, uh, Colossians 3, 4, and Hebrews 2, 10 also tell us that this glorious Son of God offers to bring you into His glory, to take you out of the squalor of this world, out of the brokenness of this world, to clothe you with His majesty and His splendor. To bring you into his glory so that you would be a son by grace. And I cannot think of a better hope for the broken than that. The hope of glory where all our sin and all the death, where all disease and sickness, where all our pain and disappointment, all of it is swallowed up in glory. And we shine like Christ. And so, beloved, will you not come to this Jesus? Will you not come to the gracious Savior of this world who comes to you to bestow grace upon you? Will you not come to the glorious Son of God who offers the hope of glory to you? Will you not come to Him and give yourself to Him? In your pain, in your brokenness, in your sickness, in your despair, will you not throw your hands onto his arms of grace. We're going to sing a song now and close off our service, which I think beautifully caps off our service and caps it off with the right exhortation. Oh, let the Son of God enfold you with his spirit and love. Let him fill your heart and satisfy your soul. Oh, let him have the things that hold you and his spirit like a dove will descend upon your life and make you whole. Beloved, may we let the Son of God enfold us. Let us fall into His arms for strength and hope and courage. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank You that You are a God who abounds with grace and that You have given Your Son to us through whom we receive grace upon grace. 
Dear Lord, as we face the challenges of this life, as we try to survive the difficulties and the heartaches and the pain, as we deal with the reality of our imperfect world and our own inherent lack of strength and ability, we pray that we would lean upon the gracious Savior and the glorious Son, that He would carry us and, dear Lord, that we would, as a result, praise and glorify you. Help us in this, Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.